Welcome to the Rock Health Podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and healthcare stakeholders to get an inside take on the biggest trends in digital health. This podcast is brought to you by the The Rock Rock Health Health Team. Join us and build something useful. Hello, everybody. I'm Bill Evans, the CEO and Managing Director of Rock Health, and welcome. We're really excited to have this conversation today with several friends. Two fellow investors and good friends, Liz Rocket of Kaiser Permanente Ventures and Steve Krauss of Bessemer Venture Partners, as well as my uh, very good friend, Michael Esquivel, a partner at Fenwick & West. He's a, a well-known corporate attorney here, and I've been really fortunate, feel incredibly lucky to work with him every day as Rock Health Counsel. So, you know, in today's conversation, we're going to be talking about the unprecedented funding and trends during the first half of this year. And we're going to look ahead into the venture capital fundraising environment for digital health as well. I would love to just maybe start off with this Dickens quote that came up in our conversation. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this sense that here we are in a pandemic, a global economic downturn. And then at the other end of the spectrum, digital health as an industry has been sort of building momentum and, and starting to hit as, its stride as a young industry you know, we're, we're sort of on the cusp of big rounds of funding and exits. And so these two things are happening at the same time. I'd love to get your thoughts on this and open it up to some back and forth. Who wants to jump in first? It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. I, I, I'll shoot. Steve here from Bessemer. Thanks for uh, having us and look forward to a fun panel with my friends, Liz and Michael, um, and you too, Bill. I think finally, after a lot of years, and Rock Health was on the forefront of this, you know, digital health is coming into recognition as a real part of our economy. I think there were a lot of things that happened, and we could talk about it prior to COVID, that laid the basic infrastructure and the capability for digital health to finally be deployed. And then you add on top of that, you know, this pandemic, which has been tragic and tragically handled, and frankly, the digital solutions are the way that people who desperately need care uh, are accessing care. And so, uh, and then on top of that, we have an industry that has been nascent and a lot of people have been saying, where are the exits? Where are the IPOs? You know, frankly, I actually don't think it's too late. I think it takes like 10 years for an industry to come into fruition. So I actually think it's, it's about the right time, but for a long time, it was like, when's it coming? And now we see it, right? We see Livongo being hugely successful. Teladoc, which went public beforehand, just an amazing, you know, run up in, in, in value, right? You see One Medical, you see Accolade, there's a bunch of others that are following them. And so I think we're, you know, after the Sisyphean task of, you know, getting the regulatory approval and building the technologies and having consumers, you know, get comfortable with digital health and frankly, having physicians get comfortable, right? And the long sales cycles that it takes to, you know, get enterprise customers, whether they be providers or payers. I mean, that's, that took years to climb up that mountain. And I'm not saying we're at the top of the mountain because I think we've got a long way to go. I think this is another several decades of, of run of this industry. But we're, we, we've finally gotten to a place where people recognize us. But yet it's in the face of, you know, the worst pandemic where you just feel horrible, right? Like everyone's challenged. And, and so you don't really want to celebrate success in a time when there's so many more important things. COVID, all of the issues about equality and equity. And I'm glad you guys are doing your survey that exists in our world. I mean, it's just it's a tough time to be a human being right now. And so it we have to be thankful for what we have. And also what I love about our industry is I work with people like Liz and Michael and so many entrepreneurs who are in this industry because they want to make a difference. It's not just about making a buck. They want to make a difference. And so one of the greatest things I saw today was actually, I love reading Axios. And they had this poll about 
you know, the industries that had the highest NPS. And finally, healthcare, which has so long been disparaged for making profits and all, but like finally healthcare and healthcare workers and institutions had extremely high NPS. In fact, I think it was the highest, right? And I'm so glad that my friends who are frontline workers, healthcare workers are finally getting the recognition. I mean, these people went into battle, right? In the beginning of March and April, not knowing what it meant for themselves, for their families, for their coworkers. And I, so I finally think people are realizing the importance of healthcare. I mean, everyone knows it day to day, but I think these workers are looked at as heroic. And I think we have to do our part in this industry, to empower those people and make them better. And so it's just a weird time. I think the quote was great, Bill, and that's kind of how I think about it. Hi, everybody. Liz from Kaiser Permanente Ventures. Some of the best of times, worst of times here is we've got all the different folks who are the users or purchasers of digital health who are just in, they're on the front lines of this, whatever the capacity uh, that they are serving in. But at the same time, they've all been pushed, I know within my own organization, to take on virtual care in a totally new way, right? So where in the past it's been, let's experiment, let's pilot, let's test. You know, we have the period where we're actually going to go fully to virtual services for a period of time at the early stages of the pandemic. And now, even today, as this really continues to just stretch out, more and more opportunities um, for folks to use virtual care. And I think what's exciting about that is just, to me, this means we're going to have more and more providers who are able to imagine to provide sort of different different feedback, different ways of engaging with the concept of digital health, where in the past, we had so many folks who maybe hadn't used it directly, had perspectives, had opinions, but that weren't informed by actually giving it a try. So it's not all um, perfect out there in terms of what it's like for providers using virtual care modalities as part of their practice. Um, But just that component of digital health, I think we're going to have in the years to come a lot more imagination that's going to be because of this very difficult time. So that's one silver lining of this for me. Yeah, and sort of picking up, Bill, hi, everyone. This is Michael Esquivel from Fenwick and West. Thank you to, to my, my three fellow panelists for including me here. You know, picking up on a theme Liz just identified, what's really exciting from a legal perspective that we're seeing, it's, you know, for a long time, a lot of digital health technologies were centered a bit around convenience. Now, because of where we are today with the social distancing requirements of, of this go forward era, now we're seeing that digital health technologies are also enabling safety. It, it's not only just convenience now, it's also they're safer. It's safer to have remote monitoring. It's safer to use a telehealth visit than to enter a doctor's office or even a hospital worse. So flowing from that, of course, there's this tension between regulatory compliance and analysis and, and ensuring that we get these technologies out there. And what we're seeing more and more in our deals from a legal perspective is, you know, regulatory used to be a sort of a check the box almost uh, type exercise, but now, you know, it's a fundamental part of the underlying business model. And so what we're going to need to see going forward is a need for greater flexibility in the way regulatory counsel thinks about these things. We're probably going to have to envision what does the world look like from in a post-COVID environment in terms of Uh, looking at uh, whether some of these more stringent regulations may be relaxed in the future. And so there's there's this real interesting tension and there's a push that we're seeing from investors, from other stakeholders, from even regulators around this notion of these digital health technologies, yes, they're more convenient, yes, they're more powerful, but fundamentally in this current environment, they're safer. And and it's a really exciting time and we're seeing a a real shift in mindset in, in a lot of these 
venture financing deals, these commercial partnership uh, transactions, and, and, and the overall way that many of these participants who are investing, partnering, and, and building technologies are engaging. And so for me, it's, 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 COVID has really ushered in that new sort of mindset, and it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I, I would add, I think it's a really good point about looking at this from a regulatory uh, perspective. The one thing that I've heard and obviously, you know, uh, telehealth visits have been uh, reimbursed at the same rate as in person. And so, you know, just another thing that's going to be put on this industry's shoulders, um, both the users of telehealth, but also the companies themselves, is that there is going to be an audit <laughs> done uh, by some payers, some government entity or commercial payer of has this been appropriately used? Because by the way, I think some providers are realizing, consumers re realizing that it's easier and quicker to use telehealth. But I think just keeping a high standard on that, because one of the things I worry about is that there's a backlash against telehealth, right? That from a regulatory, a compliance, a, a reimbursement perspective. And I was excited to see a couple of weeks ago, Seema Verma saying that she was going to keep marching forward on telehealth and reimbursing it. But I also think that to your point, you know, Michael, about what we need to do from a legal perspective, we also need to keep a high bar, both as users and as vendors, uh, to make sure that we, we maintain what is a very, what would be very good for the industry for certain use cases. Of course, some things have to be done in person. We all get that. But I, I just worry about that, given the magnitude of telehealth visits uh, that are happening right now. With these greater remote services, we're seeing greater data accumulation and, and collection. And so there, to your point, we have to be heightened and aware and focused on that because there's greater risk there, therefore. And so it's an exciting time. And, and I echo that, that the, the regulatory framework needs to continue in this very progressive, focused manner to really capture and allow these technologies to really, really succeed to the benefit of safety and, and convenience for all of us. Yeah, I, I was going to pile on here too, Steve. I mean, I love the point about adoption right now and the call out, the watch out maybe on sustainability and the right pricing. I think there's going to be multiple pressures downward on price over time on traditional telehealth, right? Basic consults and some other things for, for a lot of the reasons just said. What we're really intrigued about, and Rock Health has done five, now six years of consumer adoption research on telehealth and other stuff. You know, it's up and to the right over time. I'm predicting, haven't yet seen results. We haven't run the data yet this year. A big jump for obvious reasons. But I'm really more curious about 2021 and 22. I don't think it's going to be down. What I hypothesize and love to get your thoughts, is this moment going to drive as the price pressure on traditional goes, you know, pushes prices down, are we going to see a drive to higher value add telemedical services? You know, full stack and higher uh, complexity, or will we see other headwinds? What's the feeling here? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think... <laughs> Who would have thought we could said this like five years ago? But telehealth is now a commodity, right? I mean, and Teladoc's done a great job of building business around it, right? They've acquired things in behavioral other areas and, and they've got a great stock price. So I imagine they'll be more acquisitive. Uh, Livongo, same thing. They're, they're going to broaden their toolkit. They already have. And so I do think, I kind of view EMRs as a base infrastructure that had to happen. And then on top of that, you're going to have telemedicine, remote monitoring, medication delivery at home. You can sort of see the stack of infrastructure that has been, been built. By the way, it's been built over the last 10 years. So let's give ourselves a pat on the back. Like a lot of people are like, where's the exits? Where's the IPOs? Like, you know, 10 years ago, less than 25% of doctors were using EMR. So we've like fast forwarded the industry pretty far. So I always get a little annoyed at cynics who are like, uh, oh, you know, EMRs. It's like, no, EMRs were like 
fundamentally really important here. Like we wouldn't be here today, right? And so I actually think now EMRs are sort of now, eh, and I think a while from now, telemedicine will just be a, a have to have, a need to have. And to your point, Bill, I think where the value will have happen is these full stack vertical care providers, right? And I believe just like the EMR uh, uh, layer became verticalized, right? So you have leading EMRs for dermatology and urgent care and behavioral, so too will these sort of full stack solutions, right? Will become verticalized. You're gonna have folks in, already there are in muscle, musculoskeletal. We have a company called Hinge, behavioral, right? You know, you're gonna have stuff in oncology and cardiology. And a piece of that will be a telemedicine layer, but there'll be a lots of other things. And those companies will not be pricing on fee-for-service reimbursement for telemedicine. They'll be pricing on case rate, value-based, right? I mean, they won't be getting $100 reimbursement. They'll be getting $1,000 a year to manage, you know, a full stack MSK, you know, episode, right? Or to keep people out of getting surgery, right, for example. So, like, that's how the pricing is going to move. Um, and I, I think you're right about that insight. Uh, it will take, again, it'll take five, 10 years. But I think that's the way the world's going to look when it comes to telemedicine in the future. Yeah, and I think the broader economic impact on all of the different sort of sectors of purchasers in this digital health world, when I look out to 2021, 2022, that's where my uncertainty comes from, right, in terms of what what exactly is going to go down here. So if I look at employers as a big driver of digital health adoption over the last decade, we've got massive unemployment. It's not affecting a lot of the big self-insured employers yet, but this is an economic ripple that is likely going to keep going. My biggest economic advice right now for those outside of healthcare and inside of healthcare is wear a mask for the love of God so that we can stop with this. Uh, But I think assuming this pandemic is going to go into the next flu season and longer, we're going to start to see some, some big effects on the large companies that as employers have fueled a lot of growth here. And that's also going to hit the payers. So right now, I think payers are aware that sort of there is something coming down the pike for them, even though this last couple of quarters, financially, you can look at the results. Folks are doing pretty well. But what is this going to mean for just sort of who they're covering and all that sort of thing? And then providers are looking at the potential for a lot of change to create more stability within the provider world in the coming years. So when I look at that, right, the fundamentals of each of these different players, it's hard for me to know where is telehealth itself or where are some of these virtual care modalities going to take off? I think some of the most interesting stuff and the things that are getting folks to sit up and pay attention are the places where really a full stack service has been peeled off around a prescription, right? That's been some of the fastest growers here and it's the easiest thing to do. You know, you can kind of deliver value, but that it is taking off with consumers, I think is going to continue to teach folks who are trying to provide a broader set of services, what you can do, how you can structure it, that sort of thing. So those are some of the ones that we're watching. Absolutely. I'm going to pivot us a little bit. One of the things we talked a lot about was just the state of the market, right? And sort of the, the money. We had a really big surprise. And, and when I say we, I should just say I, you know, at the end of 2019, I went out and predicted and Rock Health predicted 2020 would be a, a flat or somewhat down year for investment, just based on the business cycle coming out of 19. And then COVID hit. And, you know, we saw in March and April, so the end of Q1, just the rest of the financial and fundamental economy, a big downturn in terms of investment. And then March, uh, I'm sorry, May and June came and investment came roaring back. So we predicted again, wrongly at the end of Q1, we said, hey, we were right at the end of 2019, this is gonna be a down year. Uh, and then really, really quite surprised. And, and it seems like investors turned their attention to portfolio management in large measure and fewer deals got done. 
we sort of saw that in our data. We, we talked to you guys and others, um, a couple dozen investors, just to get a sense of what was going on uh, and why we were so wrong about our predictions. What, what did we miss? Well, I'm just curious. I'll uh, we'll throw it open, sort of what happened in May and June and sort of this renewed interest. We saw some, in, some things in the numbers. We saw really active CDC participation. We saw a preponderance of later stage deals. But we also saw the, the number of deals hold steady or grow period over period, year over year. So what do you guys read in terms of the, the market is playing out for digital health venture investment in this first half? Yeah. I think our fund, like a lot, a lot of folks spent, as you said, Bill, the first couple of months of this just in a place of let's attend to the portfolio. Let's make sure everybody is well, uh, well positioned for something that we don't know how long this is going to last. It could be a couple of months. It could be a couple of years, right? So let's feel very good about the cash position of, of everybody, but also make sure leadership teams are seeing within the context that we work in healthcare opportunities that exist, right? To, to potentially pivot slightly or significantly to go after things. I've just said to so many people, the leaders that impressed me the most in my world were the leaders of our portfolio companies and other digital health um, leaders who really took this massive challenge, right? Teams suddenly working all remote, uh, having all of their customers going through a period of upheaval and stress and crisis, and really looking for new and better ways to serve, kind of aware that the fundamentals of their business were going to be important in this period. So I've been really inspired by the leadership in our industry. I think that what that translated to when we got to sort of, all right, everybody is reasonably well taken care of within the portfolio, and there's still a ton of need. And some of these companies that we've been watching for years are finally facing a viable market. <laughs> like they're actually seeing tremendous growth. And so that, that shift has been, I think, what's driven from our perspective, what's kept us pretty active in the market, looking at new deals. If we have the, the Great Recession in working memory, what do we take from that? Where are the parallels? Where is this different? Um, obviously, our industry is at the helm of this particular crisis. And so there's a lot of these different factors. But the other thing is that stock market is still not responding to what's going on on the ground, right? So, and there is some reality to this of there isn't the same liquidity crisis yet that we saw in the Great Recession. And so it means different dynamics. And it does mean that we're thinking differently about investing. I mean, I think, you know, we saw a few investors really drive up a lot of the activity in the period of May and June, and perhaps, you know, sort of give others confidence that it's safe to keep diving in. We've actually seen more activity at an earlier stage than I had anticipated. And some folks wiser than I have suggested that in a time of recession, it's actually good to get in early with a company that you think has just great team, good basic direction, but they're going to struggle in the market anyway. <laughs> Better to invest at that stage than looking at somebody who's really just expanding commercially. So we haven't necessarily totally adhered to that, but that has helped me wrap my head around where I've seen some funds seeming to go even earlier than they, they might have before. So Steve, I'm curious what, what you're taking from all this. Yeah, I, I think you made a really good point. I mean, you know, I, I think back to 2007 and eight where the stock market just tanked and that was fundamentally different. I mean, there is some latency in the venture capital business. The fact that they're 10-year funds, the fact that you need to deploy that money usually in three to four years, the fact that that's our job. And so if you're not deploying the money, some people feel like sitting on their hands isn't a wise thing to do, although sometimes it might be the best thing to do. But here, there's just a fundamental disconnect from the public markets 
which frankly, our companies, the real winning companies, the ones that drive the alpha in your portfolio are the ones that go public generally. I mean, right. And so there's still that hope out there. There's still that hope that you can be Shopify, which is a Bessemer company or Livongo, or, you know, there's plenty of them out there. In fact, there's a, unfortunately, I have and have not in our public markets now. The tech companies are going through the roof, right? And so I think there's that, right? Is that we just don't feel that massive pullback that happened in 2007, eight that freaked us all out. Number one, even though I think we fundamentally should, because I think the economy was down 33% today, at least reported in terms of Q2, <laughs> which is pretty stark, right? Um, the other thing I'd say is like, just to give an insight to sort of how venture capital works, by the way, it's, there's, it's not that mysterious, but you know, every fund got together and said, okay, I work for a general fund. So healthcare is just a part of Bessemer. But we said, what are going to be the tailwinds given that we're going to be facing this pandemic for, you know, two years probably until vaccines are fully available. Right. And so we talked about industries and guess what? Like digital health came up because ed tech, right. Work from home. Those were the big roadmaps. And so we're not the only fund to do that. We're not, we don't have any secret sauce at Bessemer. Everyone did that. And I'm sure digital health was on the top of everyone's list. And so I think you probably have a lot of funds coming into digital health because it just makes sense intuitively, right? I think that's one thing. I think the third thing is we have a relatively stable customer base. Like I would be scared. I mean, I'm sure there's great consumer companies, but it's, it'd be really tough to invest in consumer land. And I know we'll talk about consumer health later, but like, you know, unclear how the consumer is going to be feeling, uh, you know, over the next couple of years. But when you sell to employers, yes, there's going to be unemployment, but they're stable to your point, Liz, when, you, when half your revenue is from the government, right, through Medicare and Medicaid, like it's a relatively stable customer base compared to some other industries. So I think that helps. And then I'd say, you know, like I can't help but say that I think venture capitalists are also drawn to things that they're personally interested in. And at the end of the day, software as a service and selling software to enterprises, that's for some, but like, I don't think that moves everybody throughout their career. Like, I think actually people want to do something that they care a lot about. I think a lot of people are drawn to healthcare because they're interested in it emotionally, intellectually, personally, whatever. And I think in the pandemic, like everyone said, holy cow, like this is a really important industry. So I think it's like an amalgamation of all those things in that order, right? What I'm really interested in, Bill, and we can talk about this later is I imagine there aren't a lot of health system facing businesses that were funded would be my guess. I think people are really scared about what's going to happen to health systems. And I'm very curious to see what happens to consumer. I mean, obviously we saw Roe just raised a lot of money and Hims is talking about a SPAC IPO. And so their consumer might bully through in healthcare, but I think in other places it's been relatively hurt. So I'm interested to see in consumer health investing and in uh, healthcare investing focused on health systems, what the next year looks like. Cause I think those might be a little challenged. I'm going to tie two things that you guys are talking about together, hopefully. And I was really curious about the same thing you asked, Liz. What's going on in early stage? So deal count, deal volume was flat, a little up in seed into A, but the prices were entirely flat. The total volume for the whole market was a little up, but total dollars is way up. So where are the dollars, total dollars being driven? It's series C and up. Flip it around the other way. Where did the dollars disappear from in April and uh, May? We, we think it was really around late stage deals. And so kind of the story I'm telling around this, guys, and, and, you know, you, and Michael, you see more deal flow than probably any of us because of the position you sit in in the market. The story I'm telling at least is, well, when the public markets cratered, the most proximate private investments, the, those that are closest to exit, are the most influenced by public market prices. And so investors thinking about getting into a later stage, more mature company are going to think more carefully at a time when the market is 35% off than they are before or after that moment. And so once that moment passed in May and June, we saw late stage big deals 
prices going up. It sort of holds, at least that narrative holds to the data. You know, Michael, I mean, I, I would be, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts as well. If this is something, you know, generally you have a pulse on across all the, the things you see. Yeah, for, for sure, Bill. And it is consistent with what you just laid out. And I'm privileged to work with some incredible entrepreneurs and technologies where we're seeing our late stage companies raising larger sums. Uh, Liz and I work with a company where they just upsized $150 million round to $215 million, and then yesterday to $250 million. So we are seeing these late stage players. There's a flight to quality for sure in these late stage companies. They're excited about trying to get out with the public markets behaving the way they are. And so it's, it's a really interesting dichotomy. On the Series C and Series A side, by contrast, I mean, I'm still seeing deals happen. I have seen valuations sort of continue to stay relatively flat. But what I am seeing is it seems like, at least right now, you know, investors are, are demanding just more validation, more confidence and verification that the business model is working, that there's a product market fit. So I'm seeing that seed and A deals sometimes are taking a little longer. But once you lock in an anchor institutional venture investor or a corporate investor, you're seeing then all of a sudden a pile on effect. Everyone wants to follow. And so it, it just feels to me it's taking a little longer on some of these seed and A rounds. But once they uh, are able to secure a good lead or, or have line of sight to a good lead investor, the flywheel gets spinning rapidly. And so it really is an interesting phenomenon. In terms of valuations, curious to see what Liz and Steve are seeing, but I am seeing in the earlier stages, I haven't seen really a drop in valuation, but I haven't seen some of the explosion in valuation you're seeing on the later stage cycle. Yeah, I mean, I'll just speak to some of what we've seen lately. There was definitely in the early days when, when sort of new investments started to come back, call it May, a lot of companies come into us saying, you know, we're not looking for a priced round, right? Sort of like, could we do a bridge? That something that there was the sensitivity from entrepreneurs about, is there going to be a ton of pricing pressure? I think the activity of the last couple of months is working out some of those kinks, although some, some remain sort of trying to avoid raise capital without being fully exposed to market fears that might affect their valuation. The only other thing, though, that you know, our group has been talking about a lot is just the prices in digital health had been so high flying for the last couple of years. There's a lot of different subcategories in here. Some are doing better than others in this period. But for some, those high flying valuations are actually being bolstered by all this activity, right? And so I think some of those groups are feeling better that they're coming in with the, both the revenue numbers and the growth rates to uphold some of the valuations that have been seen in the past. The uncertainty that's ahead of us in this market broadly, I think is going to bring things back in, but I haven't seen the super aggressive like funds trying to sort of take things for a song kind of thing. There's still enough uncertainty on all sides of the table that people are feeling their way out, but I do think it's leading us to some valuations that feel a little bit more just down the fairway, like not not overly aggressive on either side. Steve, tell me if I'm too much of a Pollyanna on that. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, there's always a thinking, you know, Series B traction deal is going to be done at Series A prices and go down the stack, Series C at Series B prices. That hasn't happened. The pricing is still very attractive. I think there's a lot of capital out there. And I think I haven't seen really a lot of change in pricing in the market. I mean, everybody can look to Avango and say they should get a 30 to 40 times Ford comp or whatever it is, right? I mean, and that's out there, right? And so I haven't seen any impact yet. You know, maybe this is a good point to toss into the conversation 
the possibility, probability. We've all sort of hinted around, hey, this is a, we're in a charmed moment here for a while, right? And so in the uh, scenario where capital markets, the economy are both kind of crunch, then we're going to see more down rounds, more bridge rounds, more complexity in fundraising. I guess I'll just ask the question plainly. We haven't seen this in our portfolio yet. We haven't seen it in our data yet. Are you guys feeling this? And you know, is there a wind of change or maybe for Michael, more complex deal terms, the kinds of things you would expect to see, are those showing up yet? Yeah, fortunately, you know, those structured deals, as we like to refer to them, really aren't happening yet. But I am seeing a a small shift, though. For example, Bill, I was just thinking, looking back on the last half dozen financing transactions I've worked on, we've certainly seen increased regulatory compliance representations and warranties requested, you know, greater due diligence pushes around data privacy and internal controls. Like I said earlier, at one point, it was a little more check the box. And now we've moved from that. And it's starting to flow into some of the uh, legal terms in these financings. Another one we see is operational covenants, right? We're seeing that investors are insisting that they either have a, a say and approval right over budget variances, all sorts of debt incurrences, strategic relationships, executive compensation matters. And it's flowing into the investor rights agreements and some of the protective provisions. And we're seeing more of a focus of just colloquially across my deal set, seeing more focus that way. So one other phenomenon that sort of relates to all the entrepreneurs, and I think this has been heightened with the pandemic, is a real push by investors to bring on independent board members. For a while, the notion was, listen, we'll slot, leave an empty vacancy for a great independent, and we'll get to it at some point. And now more and more across not just digital health, but really across the tech ecosystem, I think rightly, we're seeing a push to get those industry leaders and thought leaders to join these conversations in the boardroom. So I am seeing, for example, sometimes in financing a push to say within 180 days, we're going to fill that seat, right? There's a commitment on everyone's side to fill that seat. And I didn't see that kind of pressure on those types of terms pre-COVID. It was sort of an afterthought. And now as we emerge in this May and June and July cycle, and we see this uptick, I do think we're seeing more and more pressure around items like that and in the actual terms of the long form documents. I don't have anything to add other than I do love independence on, on boards. I, I second what Michael said. I think they're great, especially for venture back boards. And, and most importantly, these are folks who know how to run businesses and build businesses. So as an entrepreneur, a, a place to go to as to get advice. So I'm, I'm a big fan of those, but I honestly, Bill, I haven't, if you take a step back, like nothing's really changed. I think we're all sitting waiting for something to change, but nothing's really fundamentally changed, save for the few subsectors that I mentioned where I think there might be less deal activity. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. Do you guys, and this is a loaded question, so I don't know if anyone's going to answer it or you all take the fifth. So structured deals are a way of trading off price for complexity in the deal. Uh, protections uh, that that add complexity. Do you have any categorical advice for founders on that trade-off decision or is it, it depends? I personally think that if you can, and again, this is like, this is if as an entrepreneur, you're into the fortunate situation to having a number of interested funders in your business, right? Um, I think that structure early on sets really bad precedent. And you're going to live with it for the rest of your life, right? So, you know, when I'm a Series A investor, a long time entrepreneur, I'm always arguing for them to not take 
a little higher price, but more structure because guess what in the series B, because the series C and series D are going to want it. It just creates a lot of downstream challenges. Now, if you're at the end of like, it's like the pre IPO round and you're sure you're either going to get bought or you're going to have an exit or have an IPO, which is always hard to be totally sure about, but you feel really good about it. Could I see taking some structure in the last round and get a higher price so that you take less dilution? Yes. You know, I can see that scenario. When I'm a series A investor, what I love is I'm like almost fully aligned with the entrepreneur, at least in terms of the capital stack. Right. And so in that position, I'll tell you from my own perspective, which I'm pretty aligned with the entrepreneur, we don't want structure. Right. So, you know, Michael's more of the expert here, but that would be my piece of advice. Yeah, Liz, I'll jump in just for a second. I have three words for entrepreneurs. Don't do it. If you have the choice between clean terms and a slightly lower valuation than structured terms with full ratchets, redemption requirements, all sorts of springing rights, if revenue targets aren't hit, all sorts of really, really what could be uh, punitive terms, you really structure is kicking the can down the road in my experience. And you're, you're much better off taking a clean deal. You'll live to fight another day. It is famous last words. I agree with Steve. Like every entrepreneur who thinks the M&A is right around the corner or the IPO is right around the corner, that's virtually impossible to predict. And a few are able to do it, but taking that structure, it's always famous last words when I hear, this is the last round of funding we're going to raise. And, and inevitably, there's one more that comes later. And the structure and the precedent that you've set will come back to haunt and, and carry forward. And I agree with Steve, at the end of the day, if the entrepreneurs do this right, the Series A investor is more aligned with the founders and its position in the equity stack and the, and the liquidation waterfall oftentimes is more aligned with the founders. So keeping deals simple, uh, making that trade-off between clean terms and maybe slightly lower valuation as opposed to structured terms with higher valuations, I think is something that, that you really as an entrepreneur should take to heart. I totally agree. Michael has had to guide our fund through a couple of situations where we were dealing with structures that have been put in place in the past. And it just uh, can was kicked down the road. That is a very good way to say it. So I think that the only other thing I would add is we should pick this back up again in a year if things have materially changed, because I'm, I'm mindful that our industry has had the benefit of some pretty good years over the last several. And so we haven't had to see a lot of this, right? So if, if we're in a materially different position, call it a year from now, maybe we are yeah. having to get smarter about where we that, use that, things like that. that. That's a really good point. And that's why you have councils like Michael and others is like, there will be a time when participating preferred comes back. And it's really important that entrepreneurs understand that term and what they're trading off for it, because it was around a lot in 2007, 2008, 2009. This generation of entrepreneurs who started businesses between probably 2014 and 20, probably have never seen that term. I mean, maybe, you know, less than 5% have. I'm, it's like the West Coast, it's like, oh my God, like, you know, but that will be back, right? And so will other terms. And so at that time, you want to be prepared to understand those terms and what effect they have on, on your economics, right? And your control of the business, so. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephen. I, I see this often. It's so simple for management teams to look at their percentage ownership on the cap table and say, look, when I sell for X dollars, this is how much I'm going to get. But unfortunately, you know, those participating features, the multiple liquidation features end up really distorting the economics. And sometimes entrepreneurs and founders are surprised to learn that, whoa, I don't actually yield as much in the proceeds of an M&A deal as I thought. So I think having a good grasp of those terms, uh, trying to avoid them if at all possible, 
limit them. So on, on participating preferred, it's just one technical example. Try to limit it so it's not uncapped and it, and it allows the preferred investor to participate side by side with the common for eternity. You know, try to put a one or two X cap, for example. There are creative ways, limited by time, limited to some, some target in the business. And so there are creative ways to try to offset some of the pain uh, but I agree with you, Steve. No one's really seen those terms. They're starting to creep up ever so slightly in some of the data, including our own internal and external report that we put out just recently. So some of those features are creeping back in, and it's just something to be mindful of as we go forward. Yeah, great advice. Liz, you made a great point. We should check in in a year because the environment we're in now is almost certainly not going to be the one we're in in a year. One of the areas folks are really curious about is just generally CVC activity. You know, a third of all the deals in the first half of 2020 were uh, corporate venture deals in digital health. Now that, that's really high for digital health. And just to put it in perspective, digital health as a category in venture is twofold higher on average over the last 10 years roughly than all of the rest of venture. So we, we're an industry where you got a lot of corporate participation to begin with, and then we saw a real spike in this. I guess I'll leave the question a little bit general for now. Hey, what about that? And, and I love Liz, you know, you sit in this seat as a, as a corporate venture investor, and we certainly work with a number of them as well, but hey, what about that? There's a lot of CVC activity in the first half, all in the late half of the first half, the second quarter. Yeah, I mean, and I think that there's a lot of possible ways to read that, you know, to me, because corporate venture capital and healthcare could be from pharma, it could be from payers, it can be from providers, but it sounded like there was actually a good amount of activity coming from health system, corporate venture capital uh, groups, which, you know, we talked a little bit about just the risk that health systems might have in the year ahead. But the other piece of this that's real is just within those health systems, again, you're having this experience of virtual care, of digital solutions, of the importance of having a stronger digital presence in every capacity of your business. Simultaneous with a lot of these groups have now been around for a few years, if not, you know, coming on on a more established period of time. So they're trusted within their organizations. They're able to get out there and put capital to work. I do think that there's also a component of, even as we look within the world of providers and know there could be some consolidation and just sort of major market changes that are going on, there is more willingness to just drive into what will the digital component of even that sort of, that organized entity that might come out of this look like. And it leads to a willingness for more experimentation, more uh, willingness to just sort of get active in the digital market. So. I will say I'm saying all this now because I learned from you all about the uptick of CVC activity uh, in digital health. I was also surprised by it initially, but, you know, in talking to a few folks and just sort of looking at some of the activity that was happening, those are some of the drivers that I'm seeing. And for folks who are selling into health systems, there's going to be continued challenge, but I know health systems are thinking a lot about their digital strategy. So many confounding factors, but, but some interesting activity in the numbers. I feel like in healthcare, and Michael probably knows this for, for a while, and this is probably a decade ago, you know, corporate venture capital in the tech world, talking non-healthcare was kind of looked at as like, uh, they're going to ask for rights of first refusal and they're going to get in our business and they're going to spook competitors because Intel is going to have a board seat and then, you know, whatever other tech company is not going to want to put an offer to, to purchase that company. I've always felt healthcare has been great because we like love corporate venture capital. Like personally, I do. Like I love working with 
the KP team, the Sandbox team, the Signa Ventures team, probably because they know a lot more about what <laughs> than I do about what we're doing, right? But but also I think these corporate venture capitalists have realized that, and I think this is where the real power is if you're an entrepreneur and can, can strike one of these deals with a CVC is that they're not only equity investor, but alongside that equity commitment, they really make a commercial commitment to drive your product. And so, you know, some of the entities that I talked about have really made companies, right? Because they've been huge customers of those companies. You know, Blue Cross is really important to able to, as was United and others, right? Which has been a successful outcome. I know Cigna has been very progressive with lots of different companies and, and helped make one of the most uh, prominent companies in our industry. And guess what? Cigna Ventures probably did really well as an equity holder in that. So if you can strike that deal, I just think it's, I mean, heck, my money's green. I, I think I bring some value and humor to my companies and, and hopefully a good personality, but like they bring real commercial contracts and that's really powerful. Now the question, which we talked about on our pre-panel is CVC, it's not a core operating entity. It's not yielding immediate EPS to the bottom line, right? It's a innovation arm. It's a long-term investment, but it's not a necessary have to have for today's business. And so the question, you know, as in every downturn, there's been a drop in CVC. And right now we said the stock market's doing well, but you know, I worry that some CVCs will start to back out. Things get tough as they have in previous downturns. Generally, I think healthcare CVCs have been more in it for the long run, but that's a question. Uh, I think that we're going to see just like, you know, Liz said about terms as we move forward and sort of navigate these uncertain times. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that a little bit too, Steve. One of the things that surprised us about seeing hospitals as leaders in this spike of CVC investment is the, the degree to which their balance sheets are very stressed by this current pandemic, right? They're unable to see patients and unable, therefore, to generate a lot of the same revenue that they would have, and yet they're forced to, to spend a lot of money to gear up for a pandemic surge. So in that context, that's a surprise. On the other hand, there's some interesting stuff out there about how a number of hospital systems have driven over a longer period of time significant EPS primarily through their investing activities, which is a really interesting outcome for the leaders in this space. So if you're, you know, I imagine a top quartile investor, CVC and, and hospital system, you play a big role from the CFO's point of view in the long term. My guess is there's a short term, long term set of decisions and trade-offs that are going to have to be made in, in the near future. But for the short run, it seems like it's, the data is pretty clear. You know, one other thing we did is we ran a survey and we put this in our Q1 report because things looked so dire. We, we asked a dozen or more in investors, are you worried about default risk is, was one of the questions in your LP base. And we got a resounding no. That was at the, almost at the perfect bottom of the stock market when we sent that survey out. So that's a way of kind of a proxy measure for venture and funds perceived risk for the, the balance sheet risk for some of their LPs who, who in many cases are also strategic. So a couple of ways to come at it, but I think this is going to be really interesting. Yeah. So our fund got started in the late nineties, a little more than 20 years old, I think. And we're investing now out of our fifth fund. And we definitely do not take that for granted. We're, we're reminded actually by the, the two executive leaders of KP who started the fund that most corporate venture funds in healthcare do go through cycles. And even the same entity will come back online with a new venture group and go back sort of as financial or leadership wins change. I guess the thing that I'm curious about right now is given that the activity that you're pointing to, Bill, is in digital health. And this is an area where hospitals and provider groups have 
traditionally just been more hesitant consumers writ large, right? There's plenty of leaders uh, out there, but as a group, it's been a little bit more hesitant in its engagement of digital health. I think that's the question of, are these venture groups providing some strategic value of just giving better connection to and exposure to these industries, which is often the reason that folks uh, are bringing them into it. But I think that'll be something to watch for. And in terms of the LPs, a lot of the strategic investors in funds, this is part of an overall you know, investment portfolio. So I think there's less of the, is this suddenly going to just seize up and go away? That said, I think most funds are being mindful of it's uncertainty for everybody right now. Let's stay in touch and keep up good communication with each other to make sure that we understand if we're going to do a capital call, if we're going to make a new investment, is that going to tax you? Like, let's understand that and make sure that we're not for some short-term need sacrificing a longer-term relationship because a lot of these LP relationships tend to go over decades. So good to hear that folks aren't expecting to fault, but I think from what I've seen around, folks are also just doing the right thing of keeping in close touch with each other and understanding if, if we do face any constraints that, that we've at least good open lines of communication. I'll toss out one other area, and it's a good one to end on. It's at the exit. We've sort of alluded to it a couple different ways, but our numbers showed M&A was flattish, a little down, really. You know, will we see more consolidation in telemedicine? Where else might we see consolidation? How is that going to drive towards different models? What about IPOs, IPOs versus M&A? and the IPO market fundamentally? Are we going to see a class of 2020 in digital health like we would have hoped without COVID, or is COVID driving a bigger class of 2020 for IPOs? I am an optimist. I think we're going to see IPOs. I mean, I know, you know, Accolade, right, is rumored. Oak Street is not uh, technically a rock health digital health company, but dang, it's a sure good healthcare company. So I think you're going to see high growth healthcare related companies continue to go public. Uh, with the caveat, as long as the market holds up, for a lot of the reasons we talked about earlier, I think M&A in healthcare has always been fairly consistent. It's always pretty reliable. You know, there's some buyers out there that are just consistent buyers. Whether you choose to go public or get bought, I mean, man, that could be a whole, uh, having served on public company boards, having done it, had companies that have gone public, I mean, it's really what the entrepreneur wants. I mean, if you want to build an independent, standalone, lasting company, you should go public, but you should realize it is very different from running your company. You are now a showman or showwoman extraordinaire because you, your whole job is to continue to recruit great people and make sure you have the processes and, and governance in your organization to make it hum. But you're spending a lot of time on Wall Street and answering question after question after question after same question about pretty mundane topics. So, you know, some people don't want to do that. And then, you know, m and is a, a great outcome, right? Because it's also near-term cash in you and your employee's pocket for the most part. Um, but I think M&A will continue to be healthy here for all the reasons we discussed. And I think we're going to see consolidation in this industry, right? You got verticalized solutions and now they're probably going to get rolled up. And is Livongo going to go and buy all these different verticalized solutions and behavioral and musculoskeletal? Maybe, maybe. But I also think I'm a big believer that if you go deep and you become a subject matter ex- expert and you have great clinical and financial ROI and you please your customers, that that like very focused approach on what you're doing, first of all, is, is going to win every day over a horizontal approach. And we have to remember, you know, healthcare is $3 trillion. That's like $3,000 billion markets. <laughs> so there's plenty of opportunity to be the leader or even number two in, in any one of these, what we think are very specialized verticals, but are massive parts of the economy, right? Like dermatology alone is a massive part of the American economy, right? And so I don't think companies are going to roll up every space. I think there's an opportunity to be best in breed. And I'd encourage every entrepreneur starting out 
to just have that focus. Do one thing extraordinarily well for your customers, provide great financial clinical ROI, and the, you know, you'll be on your way. The $3,001 billion markets <laughs> is going to be the, the last word here, Steve. Um, <laughs> that's, that's highly quotable, my friend. Thank you all uh, to all three of you. Really appreciate the chance to, to work with everyone here. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. If you're an enterprise organization, get in touch with our advisory services. And if you're looking for investment, you guys know who to call. 